I think what's going to happen, and I, I think this is probably a three plus year evolution. I don't think it'll happen super quickly, but because um, right. it's complicated. But I think what's mm-hmm. going to happen is we're going to move. Um, and if you look at what we think of as the as the career of data engineering, I think that career is going to shift to be business engineering. And, and, and if you look at the roles of what people will be doing, say, in 2027, 2028, they'll be mm-hmm. working with the business analysts and the financial analysts and the key people in the business to understand every attribute of the business and encode that in a business model. That's yeah. why I think we have a need for a true knowledge graph, because you need a knowledge graph. You can't use a SQL database to encode a business model. You can encode a data model in a SQL database, but you can't encode a business model in a SQL database. The tabular structure doesn't work. Hello, and welcome to Coffee with Coalesce, a monthly podcast about all things data and the trends and technology transforming our industry. I'm Armand Petrosian, CEO of Coalesce, and here with me is my co-founder and CTO, Satish Jayanti. Together, we'll be your host for the next hour. Well, I'm glad you made it. You're all situated. Uh, you yep. should like to give it a second because it takes a moment for the internet to pass through for all the other registrants, but we should have a pretty awesome group of registrants on today tuning in uh, and for a great reason. We've got some pretty special guests, I would say, uh, that I'm really excited about. And so I think we had about a thousand people sign up to tune into this, uh, Bob and Kent. I think we can go ahead and get started. I see Ross Perez is already saying, let's go. I agree. Let's go. Yay, Ross. Hey, Ross. <laughs> uh, well, Kent hey, had a, Ross. It took a minute for Kent to struggle with his Windows computer. And, and, and it, 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 sort of appropriate with me on the phone here today. That, that the Windows, yeah, yeah, I know. Windows is the prop. Windows and Microsoft's the problem. So, Yeah, thanks, Bob. He likes to keep us on our toes. He likes to keep us on our toes. <laughs> Uh, you can already see so many different cities coming in, Calgary, Oregon, Sweden, Boise, Denver, Will Bailey saying Bob is the best. So why don't we get started? Um, you know, just to kick things off, I had to say, Bob, when we caught up, I was a little starstruck just because I had worked with Snowflake in the very early days. And we have several employees that call us today. And everybody that I talk to, there's always been a unifying theme around how they feel about you. And that is everybody loves Bob. And so when I saw that you had published this book, I was really excited to give it a read. I knew we had some threads into some of the team there uh, at Snowflake and with you. And so I couldn't be more excited to have you as a guest. This This goes down as one of the most exciting opportunities to be able to interact with you and ask you some questions on this book. And I loved it. So for all those that are tuning in right now, Bob recently published this book, The Datapreneurs, which I think is an awesome name. And uh, I couldn't be happier to have you on. I know you're a guest that needs no introduction, but with that being said, could you just quickly introduce yourself uh, for everybody here? I find it hard to believe that they don't know you, but you may as well just (laughs) go for it. (laughs) <laughs> well, I'm Bob Mugley. I spent uh, 23 years at Microsoft. I joined in January of 88. I was the first technical person on SQL Server back then. And then, you know, I had a, a fairly a career through Microsoft where I, I really worked with a lot of early stage things that the company was doing, certainly through the 1990s. And I moved around a lot. I, I you know, I, I, I only kept a job at Microsoft for two or three years. And I went into the operating system group uh, and did Windows NT in the early days. And then I helped to start Visual Studio and the system center group of products, all of our servers and Spent a couple of years running Office, and then then spent my last uh, almost ten years at Microsoft running uh, running the Server and Tools group and being involved in the Server group. Uh, spent a couple of years at Juniper, and then five years at Snowflake uh, from uh, from 2014 to 2019. Took the company from zero—that's an easy number to remember—in uh, revenue to uh, about 200 million. And uh, last five years or so, four years or so, I've been. Uh, well, I wrote a book, so I did that in the last couple of years, and I've been involved in boards. I'm on five different boards, including Fivetran, which is a good partner of Coalesce. Um, you know, I I first heard of Coalesce from Taylor actually at Fivetran, yeah. and he he was telling me what a good partner you guys are, and how a lot of customers like the approach that you're taking um, to data operations. So it's you know it's 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 a it's great to see. I'm I'm so excited to see everything that's happened in the modern data stack industry with all the different companies and all the different innovation happening across the industry right now. 
I love it. Yeah. You know, I got the chance to grab dinner with Taylor at Snowflake Summit a couple of weeks ago. I had a great time. I let him know that we were connecting. I'm sure we'll have him on one of these events in the future. Yeah, he'd be great. He'd be great. He'd be awesome. Yeah, he's a great or time. George. George would be interesting. George would be you know, <laughs> question. George is always fun, too, of course. Uh, different personalities, but that's why they're so successful. Very I think they're very complimentary. Yeah, just like me and Satish, my beloved co-founder here. <laughs> right. you, um, you actually need, you know, that's one of the things that's really important and certainly was, you know, is key to like a company like Snowflake success is the combination of different people that actually add to making the thing successful. Absolutely. Yeah, you need all types of different characters depending on their roles. So I'm totally with you. I've got plenty of questions. Before we jump into that, Kent, I know you've been on the last Coffee with Coalesce we did. Why don't you... Oh, yeah. Give a quick intro as well, and then Satish, and I will kick things off with some some questions. Yeah. So, uh, Ken Graziano, um, I was the chief uh, technical evangelist at Snowflake. I actually worked uh, at Snowflake from 2015 until 2021. Uh, Bob, Bob uh, helped bring me in uh, to the fold there, and I, I got to see his uh, his amazing management style, and I. I in all sincerity, Bob, you know, I, I've never worked under a CEO like you before, and it was an incredible experience, especially this is my first time, first time I'd ever worked with a real, I'll say a real startup. I start, worked with a startup in the 90s, but it, it was pretty small potatoes compared to Snowflake. But to, to see the way that you you managed people and the transparency, and you talk about this in your book a lot about, about the values. And I know you and I had a lot of conversations about that over the years. Did. So. I, I, did, I did that for a bunch of years, been in the data space for near 40 years now. And now, uh, like Bob, in my uh, retirement from Snowflake, um, I'm an advisor to a bunch of companies, in, including, including Coalesce here. Yeah, Kent awesome. is your data model. I mean, no one understands data models better than Kent Graziano. I think he's the. I, I couldn't he's agree probably more. Probably the premier understand. He is probably the the pinnacle <laughs> of understanding of, of how that works in the industry. So, and he was incredible. I mean, we really needed that kind of capability at Snowflake because we're trying to solve some of the world's hardest data problems from some of the biggest companies in the world. And and you know and and and, and it, we were learning along the way. We're learning along the way. And Kent was Kent has been a huge help in making that happen for sure. Uh, Thanks, Bob. I mean. Part of the relationship we have with Snowflake at such an early stage for both Satish and I was largely because of Kent, at least for how early it was. Because I remember when he jumped into Snowflake, and this was this was long before Snowflake was what Snowflake is today. Oh yeah, there just, was, just no what back then. It was Snow what. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. No, you, you know you're right, Armand. Because my first week at Snowflake, I had. Two, I had Walter Aldana, who was running partners at the time, two emails that I gave him to send out. And one of them was to Mark Bazinski, your yeah. CEO at, at Wearscape. And that was, you know, by day three, there was an yeah. email after I sat down at my desk in San Mateo. I was like, we got to get these guys in immediately, yeah. immediately, because this is the future. This is where it's going to be. Yeah, it was awesome. And I remember seeing we had Todd Boshin come in and present to us when at our SKO in Maui. And yeah, I left that meeting like, oh, we're going all in on this company. I'm pumped to see this company grow. And it was just amazing to see that growth over the course of the past several years, along with what we're doing now in Coalesce. It really opened up a, a path for so many amazing companies, whether it was Fivetran, whether it was us, whether it was Sigma, all these other technologies in the modern data stack to really focus on a best of breed solution for some of the problem areas that have, have historically plagued the analytics workflow. So big thanks to you both on that. Um, Satish, why don't you give a quick intro and I can do that same and we can jump into some questions. And, and by the way, for the audience, I want to be careful here because I'm sure a bunch of questions are going to come in, but anybody that's tuning in, if you've got questions for Bob or any of us, feel free to hit the comments. I know everybody's all over the world, globally tuned in right now. Um, but we want to make this as interactive as possible. So hit the chat if you got some questions, and I'll do my best to get to, to all of them. So, Satish, without further ado, I'll let yeah. you introduce yourself. Yeah, I, I'm Satish Jayanti, uh, co-founder, CTO of uh, Coalesce. Um, I spent most of my career in the data space, started off uh, as a uh, you know, programmer and applications dabbled there for you know, a few years, 
but uh, started off as a DBA. Uh, so I'm very close to SQL Server. <laughs> <laughs> so those days when uh, you know Microsoft was releasing the early versions, I'm very familiar. You know, um, and I can't believe how far we have come. You know, people used to pay me for creating a database on SQL Server. Uh, I can't believe <laughs> uh, you know how easy it is these days to do that. Uh, anyway, so I've spent my time as a consultant, uh, building large data warehouses for financial firms and, uh, you know, mostly financial firms. Uh, but in you know, all my learnings uh, and experiences, uh, you know, we have, I've gathered those things and partnered with Armand to, to create, you know, Coalesce. Cool. I love it. And everybody, I'm the host, CEO, co-founder of Coalesce. So let's get into it. I think, uh, you know, one, one big thing, Bob, that I attribute to Snowflake largely given the disruptive platform that was introduced to the market and the focus on strictly being the best possible platform really opened up all these doors for what we now call the modern data stack. And I think we saw massive growth with company like Fivetran. I know that that's in the book, Datapreneurs, and that you were quite close with them throughout their entire journey uh, after Snowflake launched. And so I'm curious when you, when you look at the modern data stack and the maturity of the technologies or immaturity of the technologies compared to some of the legacy tools out in the business, what do you believe is next for how the modern data stack is going to look in the future in the next year or two years or three years from now? Well, in the short run, I think it's pretty clear. We saw a set of announcements this spring and into the summer, you know, culminating on, uh, on the announcements that just came through a couple of weeks ago from Snowflake and Databricks at their respective summits. You know, we now have five platforms. That's the first yep. thing, is there are five modern data stack platforms, Snowflake and Databricks, Microsoft, Amazon, and Google, all of which have right. their own. And, and they're all going to have their own, pretty much their own unique code base, pretty much across all of that. And, mm -hmm. uh, uh, but they all do the same thing, roughly. That's the thing that's interesting. They all have most of the same characteristics to it. They all come from very different places, largely based on where they started from. I mean, you can sort of tell the, each one of these stacks if you look at the leg, at the at the the history of the organization and the, the team. That's always true. I always think you can see org charts. You can see org charts through products. In fact, I just mm -hmm. had a conversation with my friends at Microsoft, who I still work with. Um, I'm, I'm involved in helping the Microsoft data team right now as they work on, on uh, Fabric, their new release um, that, right. that, that's coming out this year. Uh, you know, I, I encourage them to make sure that their org, their org chart challenges, which is a classic of Microsoft, don't get in the way of the product line that they're that they're building. But all of these things have this relatively relatively consistent capabilities. You have a way of loading data. It, they're all moving to a data lake architecture. Uh, where you have a, 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 a file view, essentially, in a table view. You know, there are two and a half kind of competing technologies for that. There's there's Delta Iceberg, and then the half is Hootie. I, 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 I sort of put Hootie in a half category because it has not been broadly accepted by commercial vendors, but it's, it is deeply embedded in, a, in several large Silicon Valley companies. So it has... Mm -hmm their importance associated with that. But these standards, I think, are going to merge over time in some rational way. I sure hope they do. Uh, right. We saw Delta 3 announced last week, um, which you know provides some consistency across these data lakes. And while that is not the answer, it is a step in the right direction. Uh, and I hope to see the industry converging more and more across these data lakes, because the, the big thing now is we have the ability to store any kind of data and mm -hmm. the operations against that data is often based on SQL-based systems. I mean, the, the modeling, as I say, the modern data stack, one of the characteristics of the modern data stack is that is that the data is modeled for SQL databases through whatever mechanism you use to do the modeling. It's, 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 SQL is the, the, the lingua franca of how we slice and dice data and manage data today. Um, so there's those capabilities. Now we're seeing all of the platforms incorporate significant machine learning capabilities in with these new large language models. Mm -hmm. So that's part of it. Um, and then, you know, and then ultimately getting the data back to end users. So these, these stacks are being very consistent. They're evolving. And I think over the next couple of years, a large part of the focus is going to be machine learning and large language model enabling of the mm -hmm. modern data stack and enabling you to work with the information in there. 
um, using these these new machine learning technologies and artificial intelligence technologies. That that makes that makes sense. We're seeing that trend for sure, and hearing that feedback from the field. And one thing I remember when we caught up prior to this uh, Coffee with Coalesce event, it was uh, myself, Satish, and, and you, Bob, was that the you were very passionate about the concept and the importance of metadata and how that's going to play a big role in the future of analytics. Can you elaborate a little bit more on what it is about the importance of metadata in regards to that when it comes to LLMs or anything that's machine learning or AI driven? Do you see yeah. that I mean, relationship there? For all practical purposes, I mean, one of the key things that's that's been true for a long time is the role people like data engineers uh, perform and they perform transformations and they they set up the system for future for, for analytics and business analytics. And, uh, and, and really in doing so, they're developing some set of semantics. They're defining some set of semantics about the data. Classically, this has been in the form of metrics that get developed in, in BI tools um, that can then be reused in, in a variety of different ways. That's just one of the building blocks of an overall semantic model. Um, what I think we're going to see is that, first of all, these, these uh, uh, data lake formats, whether it be uh, iceberg or delta, you know, they store metadata. That's what they really do. They store metadata about the data. And, and I do think we're going to see innovation across each one of the five vendors in that space. Although, as I mentioned, I hope that there's some standardization that comes so that we have an access associated with that. I mean, one of the most important things in the short term, and if you ask me my number one thing and, and the thing that I'm encouraging all the vendors to focus on is, is consistent and coherent access control. Um, mm -hmm. Because the data lakes mm -hmm. create a massive uh, uh, governance challenge for, for organizations. And, you know, you really want to be able to make sure you have a consistent approaches to data masking. You have consistent approaches to, to, to access that. And we all know we need that at the column level and in some cases the role level. Um, and how do you do that when you have a data lake, you know, and people right. can read the files? And so these things have to be, you know, it, you, you have to control access in a way that is coherent with the policies that are set. And right now, the industry has not gotten there yet. So I think in the short run, what I hope the industry does is create some standards around how we do access control and, and the APIs we use to access this data across these different data lake systems and ensuring that we have governance attached to it. So that's my high order bit right now, because I think it's the number one challenge. Kent, do you, am I in the right, am I in the right? Do you oh, agree oh ab absolutely. Kent? I mean. Because you're, hey. you, you see this stuff all the time. I want to make sure, I mean, I, I, this, <laughs> I want to make sure I'm, I'm right. That, oh, yeah, yeah, and this is my, you know, sort of segue a little bit in, into uh, topics in your book around AI and all that. This is my number one concern in the AI space, it's like, it's great that we have all this data available, but mm -hmm. it still needs to be governed. And whether it's being used for an analytics application, a data application, I'll throw a data <laughs> model, a, a relational knowledge graph, or feeding into an LLM or an AI, governance is like, has to be at the top. I mean, governance, security, privacy, all of those things are of paramount concern and yeah I, um i'm with you and it's like yeah the companies i advise it's the same thing it's like we got to make this easy we got to make it you know basically no excuses for not knowing who's accessing your data who should access your data and being able to generate those controls so that the poor data engineer isn't having to code it in you know python or right. something right I hope what I would hope is that next year when we see the vendors do their major shows, you know, whether it's Microsoft Build or Snowflake Summit or Databricks conference, whatever it is, that mm -hmm. they talk about a coherent access control model in their products as a key feature and a key part of the functionality they're referring to. And I hope that that comes next year. And I hope actually the second I mean, I, I'm almost sure that'll happen, actually, because the customers will force it. But the right. thing I really hope is that there can be some industry standards set for this. And, and that's one of my goals this year, 
is to encourage these vendors to co to coalesce, shall we say, around <laughs> set of consistent standards for these data lakes. Because right now, I fear we're on a beta versus VHS situation. I'm getting more scared, actually, right now. I actually, the more I've learned from these announcements, the more concern I have that customers will have to choose. They're, they're going to choose, when they choose their data lake, they're going to choose a vendor and they're going to get locked into that vendor. And I'd like that to not be the case. And I don't think it has to be the case. So I'm hopeful that the vendors can can work on that. So we'll see. We'll see. Right. And, and that's kind of, that's the major challenge. And that was kind of the issues with the original data lakes where we ended up with the data swamps is because it was, you could only do it one right? You could only do it one way and you had to use that vendor's tool and there was no easy way to work around it. Now, recently you've seen, you know, Snowflake's now able to attach to Iceberg and Delta and a couple of others. And so the controls that Snowflake's built into its product can be applied to those. But it's like, it's still not universal. Because they, if you're outside of Snowflake, you don't have it. Correct me if I'm wrong, Kent, but I don't think they articulated how they're going to do that, though. It, no. you know, they, and I, I, I think that's kind of important. <laughs> So that's so again, I think that's this year. I think what's going to happen over the yeah. next 12 months is Snowflake and Databricks and Microsoft and all these other guys are going to get their acts together. And there's going to be one of two scenarios. They're going to be each of them are going to have their own act together, but they're all going to be very different and, and incompatible. Or there could be quality and consistency. I suspect that's likely where we're going to start. Well, I'm hopeful. I'm maybe. You're an optimist. I know you're like you're, 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 you're you said you're a techno optimist and. I, I think that's great, but you know, I'm I'm the optimist realist as well. It's like, okay, well, they they are independent companies at this point, and they're trying to build their market share, and so there's there's a little give and take there. But the fact that Snowflake is now willing to do, um, you know, basically do external tables on these other file formats, that was something that I remember in like the first year having that conversation with Benoit and Thierry because one of the customers was demanding. They didn't want to move all the data mm -hmm. into Snowflake. It's like, and they said, well, why would we ever do that? Well, obviously that's changed, right? And so now we have this concept of external tables in Snowflake where you can attach to these other files, including, including Delta files now. So progress is being made in that direction, right? Yeah, and you have to realize that it, isn't, it wasn't like, like some religious view or some bigoted view or anything that caused Snowflake to do what they did. When Snowflake was built in 2013, they, we had to put everything in our own VPC to control it and make sure that that the data, the metadata was consistent with the data. Because if they get out of sync, the system breaks. I mean, everything's broken. Right. Those two things are out of sync. And you, you really don't want to rescan the data. There's too much data to rescan and when you're dealing with petabytes. Well, and that was probably the only way to control it from a security perspective as well, to get you know SOC 2 Type 2 and HIPAA compliance and all the things that we did in those early years is we had to have that control because that's the only way you could be sure you were doing it right. But but to be very clear, it was the only thing that worked. I mean, you have to remember- with, with <laughs> That too. <laughs> you know, we're sitting here in 2023 and we're sitting on 2023, uh, uh, 2023 evolved clouds. Go back to 2013, okay? Yeah, um, very different. The cloud that worked was Amazon. Let's just yep. be clear, because Azure right. did not work, and Google really wasn't really in the business even at that point in time. And, um, and S3 did not send notifications. Was not, S3 did not send reliable notifications for changes. Now, if you have a data lake and people are changing files underneath and you have metadata, you better be notified of that change. And we did not have a reliable mechanism from our partner, our, you know, Amazon, that every time a change would happen, we would get a notification. They dropped a certain percentage on the floor. Now, what happened, I mean, this is, you know, a history, is that when we, we were complaining to Amazon about this and they were looking at it, et cetera, when we moved to, uh, because you need it even for that, you need that capability of a, of, a, of a reliable notification, even for external files that you're maintaining metadata on. Now, when we moved to Azure, it turned out, I mean, I'm not a fan of the original implementations of Azure Blob Store, and we could have a two-hour conference on why that is, because I was in the middle of the early days of building Azure. Um, and, Azure's, and Azure's initial storage systems didn't scale well, although they've broken through those problems. Um, but Azure did do reliable notifications. So fortunately, we're like, hey, we can make this work on Microsoft, and Amazon fixed it immediately. <laughs> <laughs> when they did that, they enabled the entire industry. 
Okay, because right. this couldn't be done without reliable notifications. And, and that happened in, I don't know, 2018, something like that. So this whole concept of a, of a data lake emerged from the evolution of the clouds having all the capabilities required. And now I think the whole industry is converging to a similar model. And the real question is, what's the format? And can we have some consistency in this, which would certainly benefit customers? It I would absolutely demand it personally. I think they should, yeah. should all, hey, everybody here, tell these vendors to get their <laughs> act together and, and converge this stuff because it's a mess for you if it's not converged. It's a real mess. It, it would be. It would make the switching costs just so painful and, and horrible. Plus, it just would totally complicate There's no reason for that. There's user. no good reason for it. No good reason. As I said, we're going to have separate implementations. Right. Okay. Every no vendor will do their own implementation of the data lake because they want to put proprietary information there. That's fine. But they should have a consistent <clears> thing so Snowflake can read a Databricks Delta file and, and you know, and, and Delta and, and, and Microsoft can read an iceberg file. That should be doable. Yeah, that makes sense. So, you know, again, reading the book and just knowing how tuned in you are into AI and LLMs, Bob, I, I recall reading a section around how, you know, right now when it comes to LLMs, it's all kind of focused around video and text and images. But in order to really unlock the potential, it needs to be able to consume semi-structured and structured data. And that's the that's the big kind of crossing the chasm point. What, what do you see as the bottleneck between getting from those different types of formats to then into dealing with more of like the analytics type data sets that we all want to get to. Is there any specific things that you see need to happen to get to that point? Well, yeah, I think again, we're going to see, I, I think it's important to separate these things into a couple of different viewpoints. One is leveraging large language models to open up English as the mechanism that people use to interact with our, our business intelligence systems. Okay. Right. That's what I think the industry is focused on in the next, 18, 24 months. And there's a tremendous amount of focus from literally dozens of organizations looking at that. And again, for that, I believe that what's important is, and, you know, I don't believe that, that those, any of those, those efforts will be fully successful mm -hmm. until the semantic models are built up that describe what, how the data is being, you know, how the data is structured and, and, and the core business concepts. To me, the key thing is injecting business concepts into this. Right. Um, I think what's going to happen, and I, I think this is probably a three-plus-year evolution. I don't think it'll happen super quickly but because um, right. it's complicated. But I think what's mm -hmm. going to happen is we're going to move. Um, and if you look at what we think of as the, as the career of data engineering, I think that career is going to shift to be business engineering. And, and, and if you look at the roles of what people will be doing, say, in 2027, 2028, they'll be mm -hmm. working with the business analysts and the financial analysts and the key people in the business to understand every attribute of the business and encode that in a business model. That's yeah. why I think we have a need for a true knowledge graph because you need a knowledge graph. You can't use a SQL database to encode a business model. You can encode a data model in a SQL database, but you can't encode a business model in a SQL database. The tabular structure doesn't work. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you about that, Bob. You know, I, I had conversations with uh, Mullen early on uh, after you introduced me to him and this idea of um, – uh, what you call it, GraphQL, I guess, as as the as the language and these knowledge graphs. How does that differ from? I remember back in the days was this thing called triple stores and RDF mm -hmm. that was sounds yeah. somewhat similar. Is, is are there similarities there? Is this an evolution of that? Careful, you, you you put a few things together in this. Let's let's decompose that. First of all, um, you know. The, 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 what is a knowledge graph? A knowledge graph is a database that can store concepts and objects and the relationships between them. Um, mm -hmm. If it's a executable knowledge graph, it can also store the business rules, the actual business rules attached to it, you know, in the form of formulas and things like that. That has not been commercially made commercial yet. There is no real commercial implementation of that fully available. Um, there have been a number of different approaches people have taken. Um, to do it, 
mostly people try and do it on top of Postgres databases and things. And to me, you've got semantic mismatches. Um, right. I've been involved in a company called Relational AI now for several years that's focusing on building a relational knowledge graph that leverages the core relational concepts that COD came up with, you know, in the 1970s and, and goes back to the fundamentals of that math, mathematics and exposes the full relational calculus and algebra. Now, if we look at SQL, which is a relational, relational language, a database, a, it's, a, it's a query language, um, it, it exposes a, a, you know, a, a percentage of the total relational, the, the relational uh, algebra. And you can't do everything in SQL, but right. relational is much more powerful. And if you can expose that, it is possible to build these next generation knowledge graphs. And I hope to see that being commercialized throughout the rest of this calendar year with relational AI, which is now launched on Snowflake as their core partner. Um, ah, good, great. So that's now, that should appear later. They're going to start with focusing on graph problems because graph is a subset of knowledge graph. But the technology actually is very general purpose. And again, you need a new language. SQL is not is not it's not going to evolve into this. I mean, it, it just can't because it's designed to work with tables. You need something that's designed to work with a different base uh, object. And in this case, the base object is a relation. Um, you know, you can think of that as storing mm -hmm. minimal, the most granular version of something in six normal form. And we call that graph normal form. You you totally you you totally uh, denormalize uh, uh, the uh, the um, the the uh, well. You actually totally normalize. Normal, it's fully normalized. Totally normalized. Ah. You fully normalize the. You fully normalize the 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 uh, you know the object you're creating and and describe it that way. And that includes the description of the relationships themselves, right? Well, they're they're fundamental to it, and you can relate right. anything to anything, just like you can in relational. Um, and that's why. See, the thing is, is most of the graph databases today, if you look at like a Neo and a Tiger, those were built with navigational constructs in mind, which can right. be appropriate. I mean, the hardwired links it can be appropriate for certain applications, but it's less appropriate for these analytic solutions, with, where you have essentially arbitrary connections between things. Would you, uh, so Bob, just to follow up a question on that. Would, would you see the knowledge graphs, the relational knowledge graphs, as a semantic layer, or they store the actual data? The, yeah. No, I think they're that. Well, they could store the actual data yeah. someday, conceptually, um, but it's that's so far away from doing that because the amount of scale that's required. I, I don't think that'll happen until well into the 2030s, in my opinion. Um, but but it's the semantic model, yeah, for sure. And then it can work on some of the data. I mean, that's the thing. It turns out that in order to really operate on the semantic model, you very often have to operate on the data. Fortunately, what we're finding is that you rarely need to operate on all of the data. So I think the way we're going to see this work is that these SQL databases that are part of the modern data stack have become the slicers and dicers of the data world. And that's not going to go away for a long time, okay? I mean, this is going to be true for you know, a decade or more. Yeah, and so SQL's not, SQL's not dead. Oh, no, no, and I didn't say it was dead. I, <laughs> I know you didn't, but a lot of people I, I keep wanting it to be dead. Will get written, more SQL <laughs> will get written in the future than, than it's been written yeah. in the past. But well, I hopefully think, generated, not it's written. It's going to be generated. That's what I was about to say. I actually I agree with that. True. <laughs> Let me say this. Let me say that it could be true that we're reaching the point of maximum human-written SQL production. If that does that mm. make sense? It absolutely so. makes sense. And, I and, agree and with you. Over the next few years, what's going to happen is the human writing is going to going to decrease, and the LLMs are going to take on more of it. And then once the LLMs have targeted SQL as an intermediate language, mm -hmm. target a different intermediate language too. It becomes less important because it's not up here in your head; it's in some silly language model. Th this is yeah. so funny. No, man. I love it. I, love I feel I like. Just to tie into what you were talking about earlier about how data engineers are going to transition into more like business engineers, we're seeing that happen firsthand. And a big reason why we even exist as a company, and we say this to a lot of our customers and prospects that we work with, is to minimize manual SQL writing. And so a lot of people these days, for whatever reason, take this as code approach to data warehousing or analytics projects. And we really want to accelerate development as much as possible by leveraging metadata and in our interface 
and ideally in the future AI and LLMs to generate as much of that SQL so people aren't manually writing it. And as that growth continues, it brings people closer from the data team to the actual business users and consumers of data. That's what we're passionate about at Coalesce is really being able to accelerate that development life cycle in a way that other technologies can't. And so I think we're seeing that, like you said, Bob, this may be the pinnacle of human writing SQL right now. And we're on the forefront of being able to get, get past that point with technology, whether it's automation or AI. And that's really what's going to open up the door for us to get to the next phase of analytics and data projects. And so well, it's, a, it's an exciting time to, to experience that. Yeah, I mean, can. really, if you, if you think about it with the, the scale that we're at, you know, the, the, yeah. you know the, the three V's, right? We're back to that. But with the, the, the volumes of data, the amount of data that's available that could be used and the rate at which we need to now consume it if we want to do real time analytics and data applications and change. Basically, we're back to that. You probably remember this phrase, Bob, the, we want to do things at the speed of thought, mm -hmm. right? How, how can we get there if we've got to have a thousand data engineers manually writing SQL? It's right. just there, there's a scale problem there on the labor side. Exactly. You just can't do it. Um, so the more we can automate this and get it out of the hands, like you said, get, get it up in the head. Right. Uh, and thinking in business terms. And I think that's one of the things you were saying, Bob, there you talk about the relational knowledge graph is is a business semantic model, which that's what everybody's wanted for years. Right. Well, where, like you have to look at any company, where's the sales funnel defined? Where do you find the sales funnel? I mean, how many places do you find the sales funnel defined? Is, right. is more is is more likely the case? And right. and uh, and is the it, are they consistent? If you look at the different definitions that exist inside a company, that's why I truly do believe that having a canonical semantic model that defines the business process. Yes. That everything, you know, that you always update that, you know, when you have a price change, you update that when you have a pricing model change, you update that when you have, you know, any of those sorts of things, you update that. And so the system, you have a consistent view of your business. And then from that, you orchestrate these processes. Um, essentially, these semantic models become the the definition of the desired state of the company because it's not realistic to think the entire company is going to execute execute inside this semantic model it is conceptually possible someday that that uh that these knowledge graphs could become the execution engines for more part of the business but realistic that's just not realistic in the medium term short to medium term because you have you know thousands of existing applications and systems. But what you want to do is make sure that these things are consistent as much as possible. And I think we're going to see more and more tools coming where you can define the business model inside a knowledge graph. And then from that, make sure that the remainder of your system, you know, the remainder of your organization is operating consistently with it. Well, and, and if, yeah. if you if you can get the code generated from that knowledge graph, Right. Mm -hmm. Then they will be operating well, we'll, consistent with, we'll the, with, with the model. Right. It will I mean, go eventually that way. I mean, if you look at what Coalesce will do, I think in 2030, it, it yeah. will be defining the business model. And then from that, you'll derive the data model because the data model can be derived. From yes. The model. The opposite is not true. You can't derive a business model from a data model, but you can define, derive a data model from a business model. And if I go back to my early days when I first learned third normal form relational model. And we, we did entity relationship modeling. And sometimes we call that conceptual modeling. And if it was done right, you were using business terms. And in the, in the Oracle world, using the Oracle tool, case tools, we actually named the relationships. It wasn't just a one-to-many relationship. It, it had a name, and, which, and that name was a business rule right. that articulated what is that relationship between customer and product. A customer may buy one or more products. You just right? define the, some of the core characteristics of a knowledge graph, by the way. You know, the relation, the relationship. I've been, I've been coming to that conclusion. And, and they are, and they're <laughs> with business terms, right? And that, right. You begin to put business terms, and, and what happens is these business terms become the high level concepts inside the model. And then the data, the, the data models and all those things are derived from that. And, and I do believe that's the right way to do it in the long run. I mean, I think right now we, we're upside down and backwards the way we do it. Yeah. And well, and even if we go in, 
into what the conversations with Dan Lindstedt on the data vault, when we talked about doing data vault modeling, it was always supposed to be conceptual, logical from a business perspective. And Dan has said for years, the physical data model should be more dependent on the technology you're deploying it on, it, but mm -hmm. the business model should be the same, right? And um, a couple of years ago, I came to the conclusion that, you know, hubs, links, and satellites, if you look at it from a particular perspective, is a graph. Right. It is a graph. And if you're doing it because the link is the articulation of the relationship between these other objects. And I think what you said, Bob, with the graph normal form is basically six normal form, which um, in my world, we used to call that anchor modeling, right? right. E everything, everything's independent and everything could be linked to something else somewhere. And that gives you so much more flexibility, uh, especially from a business perspective, as the business is changing is like, you know, two things that weren't related this year, you make an acquisition. Well, now there's actually a relationship because that business model position was completely different than your current business model. And it becomes a lot easier to put those things together. And then if you can have a product tool platform that generates the code from that model. Where would you find well, one of those, Kent? I can't even imagine. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I'm loving this conversation so much because you're alluding to basically our roadmap. I don't think it will take us till 2030 to deliver it, Bob, but I'm curious. I hope not. I, hope I know, not. definitely won't. Satish, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. I think they're motivated I'm, now, Bob. On this. I mean, one of the things I keep running into in this is the conceptual models associated with business are complicated enough that I think it's hard for people to actually do this. This is where I'm beginning to come to the conclusion that we're gonna use these language models, these large language models to help us build these business models. So, that makes and sense. I'm, I'm, I'm fairly certain that's the way this is gonna happen. Gonna and happen. that's been a question for years is people are always asking, have been asking me for probably at least a decade, are we ever gonna to get to the point where an AI can generate the model Right? right. Rather, like you said, it's so complicated. And as businesses have grown and there's so much more data and there's so much, you know, so many processes going on in these businesses today, you know, can can a couple of human beings, data modelers yeah. actually diagram oh. that. But yeah. So where are we going that way, Bob? You, you see that? And you know, where does that fall into all this stuff you've been you wrote about in your book that we we're actually going to generate that model. I think one of your chapters was a model driven world, which of course, as you can imagine, I'm hundred percent on board with. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that there's, there's a couple things here. Um, one, I do believe that, that, that these language models are going to generate mo the, generate business models and data models for us. And I think we'll start to see data model generation relatively soon. I mean, that'll probably be the first place where it appears. Um, mm -hmm. And uh and it's interesting to know whether the data models these, that are, get created will look like the data models that engine, that human engineers create. I, that's an open question right now. We'll find that out in the next six to 12 months more as we see some of these things get created to see how much they differ from what your customers are creating and you know everyone else that's doing data operations and, and data engineering right now is doing. Um, the the other side to all of this, you know, which we, you know, we talked about knowledge graphs and how the need for that to happen, that to me requires just database fundamentals to mature. Unfortunately, the database industry does not move as fast as these mo as, as the language model industry does. It, it it moves at a slightly slower pace because it's still it's pretty fast right now. It's as fast as I've ever seen it, but it's still you know, you're managing data and you're building transactions and, you know, these problems are very, um, you can't, you, you can't hallucinate. Okay. You have to get it right. People were very, very picky about getting the right answers from Snowflake. They don't want anything that's you know off a bit. So you got to make sure that whatever you do, you build it correctly. And what's fascinating about this whole knowledge graph space, it actually required a whole set of new in innovation to make it work. Because all of the design patterns and the, and the implementations in SQL databases have been based on algorithms that literally are 50 years old, literally. The binary join algorithm, you know, got created by, by IBM in the 1970s, you know, mm -hmm. so that system R could join two tables in its 16K of memory or 32K of memory that they had back then in, you know, in 1975 in these computers. 
And, you know, here we are today with, you know, gigabytes and gigabytes of memory, and we're still running those same algorithms. And, you know, Snowflake, you know, BigQuery, you know, they all use the same algorithms, basically. And this is a whole new set of algorithms that have been created that do multi-way joins and operate on, on, on relations fundamentally and can operate on literally hundreds of relations and being efficient in, in managing joins across that. And so that technology has taken longer to mature, but it is going to mature and it'll open this up. The other element of this that we, you, you asked about Armand early and we never got back to was how can you use these machine learning models to actually interrogate the data? Right. And, and that I think, you know, I'm not seeing as much on that right now, but I think we'll see more of that in the next couple of years. And again, I believe that some of these same ideas and some of these new algorithmic approaches that are being pioneered in relational, in, in, in relational knowledge graphs will apply to that. Because you need, the, you know, these models will need effectively the tools to work with data and to, and, to, and to model it themselves. So we're not quite there yet. I think that technology is a little bit more nascent. I mean, right now you can, you know, a language model can sample data. You can look right. at a data and actually get a pretty good answer if you sample data, but you can't look at a terabyte. Right, right. It's mm. just a scalability yeah. issue, basically. Satish, we talk about this internally so much. I mean, when it comes to being able to take a business model, convert it, un write all the underlying SQL associated with it, just being able to bring the, build a bridge back together between the business user or consumer or the data consumer and the producers. And I feel like we're on the forefront of being able to see that happen in real time. Curious, you know, based on all these conversations, where your head's at with how it relates to LLMs, AI, and, and everything that Bob and Kent are, are sharing. Yeah. Um, first of all, I'm thoroughly enjoying this conversation. So <laughs> yeah. This, you two, especially, you know, Bob and Kent uh, discussing these. This is super uh, fun. Um, just a few comments. I see some commonalities in the you know, past few decades. Uh, for example, the, the conceptual model that Kent was pointing out, where you define those business you know, rules in a way, and that would eventually kind of translate into a physical implementation of it. So the idea is still the same. However, now we have an advanced way of defining those business rules, looks like, and that's what a knowledge graph is. Um, now, how that translates into an actual implementation uh, by, you know, whether it generates the code automatically or that will, I don't know, what, whatever that case, that, that's different. And one other commonality that I see from a challenge standpoint is, uh, Bob, you mentioned, uh, can we have this one knowledge graph that represents the entire universe of rules in a company? And this goes back to the same challenge that we had. Can we have one model? data model that represents the entire uh, company's, you know, uh, relationship. So we, we're still having the same kind of threads, but they're, uh, they're just, if, you know, uh, more advanced and in a, in a much larger landscape, I, I would say. So just it's like, it's like more obtainable now, yeah. just based on the technology yeah. it, it, innovation. It, 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 be one model though, Satish, I just want to yeah. say that. I mean, it, that's sure. probably not realistic except for mo relatively small companies. I mean, certainly oh, you right. can never see a city bank or something with one model. Yeah. But I think what you might have is, um, how about this? I think I'm going to coin another term, a business mesh. How about that? Okay. okay. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> not bad. Not, not bad. Not bad. Um, oh, you know, solid. with this, I mean, the, the fundamental thing about data mesh that I always felt was correct was this concept of domain-based management and right. product and treating data as a product that that organizations own. Like I say, if, yeah. if you're a hundred-person company and there are three data data people in the company, you're not going to have a big federated. You know, you just you're going to have a data team, right? And you're and you don't need it. You don't need that. But if you're right. a big company, you got big divisions, and you, each one of those is product lines and things like that. Those things become those area of ownership are probably better contained in a domain where all of that knowledge is stored. And I think what you'll see is this movement where today we're talking about meshing data and connecting this, et cetera. It's great. It's great. Totally agree with it. Totally agree with it. But the really interesting is the business mesh, isn't it? It's the business mesh. Absolutely. So that's that semantic really like model that on top of that's all. That's a good of it. term, a business mesh. I like you, that. You heard it here first, the business mesh. This is yeah. going to be the new buzzword of tech and analytics moving forward. <laughs> Coined on the coffee with Coalesce. Um, 
Yeah, no, that makes sense. We talk about the data mesh all the time here and just kind of some of the gaps that have, have held it back from being able to actually be obtainable, but the concepts being so, so perfect for the future of analytics project. today. I, I mean, I think that certainly with, you know, I think a company can implement Snowflake and do a data mesh pretty straightforwardly. Oh, and several, quite a few have. Yeah. So there's, yeah, you and I were involved in that, you know, back in 2017, 2018, when we really started talking about how data sharing would evolve over time. Yeah. And we would have a cross organizational marketplace and, you know, and that's when we came up with the data clean room, which is a really important concept that allows people to work together and not share their data in a way they don't want to share it. So, yeah, exactly. definitely. I mean, Snowflake as a platform opened up the door for the data mesh to exist. I mean, it gave access to data in a way that companies never had before. I think what we found is typically in a larger business, you've got gaps of the technology that they're using to actually transform that data. And so that usually leads to some silos, whether they're using some legacy ETL tool or you got some business users using some desktop data prep tool. And really what we wanted to do at Coalesce was unify and provide a universal technology that was extensible, but, but still easy enough to use by those less sophisticated technical users. Certainly you can accomplish it if you have a very, very highly technical team across the enterprise. But in a traditional Fortune 500, Fortune 1000, there is usually a skill gap to, to yeah. get to and, that point. And the tools, you know, and it's the maturity of the tools that make this a lot easier. I mean, you know, when, the concept of, you know, when ThoughtWorks did their first description of the data mesh, they talked about building it with open source tools. And I was like, wow, that's a tough way to do this. I mean, that's it's really possible. <laughs> yeah. But I'm not saying it's yeah. not possible. And if you're up and down, if you're in San Francisco and you're, you got to exactly. Just got a big funding round, maybe. I was going to say, if you got some funding, but, go but, for it. But, but, but <laughs> let's say you want to build a data mess. That's just not. <laughs> That's why I argue, and I was, I was looking at this, going, my gosh, we're building this Snowflake for people. We're yeah, building yeah. A yeah. The, when when I first when I first read the Mox paper, I was like, we have customers that are already doing this. Yep. Um, they just didn't know they were doing it because we had data sharing. You know, right. data sharing the the old data share house. If you remember when we called it that, Bob. Yeah, that was, people were already doing it. And I remember very early on, you know, Nike was doing this internally, even though it was all in one Snowflake instance, they were operating with domains and they would, they would create specific virtual warehouses for a particular group. And so they could track it. They could track what was being used, what was, what was not being used. And each group was able to operate independently all within a, you know, under the Snowflake umbrella, even in, in a single Snowflake account, but they were all able to build things and then share that data because it was a single database, really, uh, with each other. And so they were actually implementing the concepts, the logical concepts of the, the federated data warehouse data mesh very early mm -hmm. on, just because of the capacity that Snowflake gave them that they couldn't do in a Teradata right. or an Oracle at exactly. the time. This wasn't possible. Yeah. yeah. So it made perfect sense. The first time I read that and someone had pointed it out to me, it's like, I think we're doing this already. Yeah, no, I, it's a great <laughs> we're, we're like so close. Great. We're just not using the terms. ThoughtWorks did a great job on putting all this oh, yeah. together. You know, the real key is, is that there's different ways to implement that for customers and, 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 and facilitating that. I mean, again, I sort of look and say Snowflake's doing a great job. You know, I think that all the other data sharing in the rest of the industry is kind of cacophony right now. I'm not sure. Other than it's still, I, not, it's still not there. Snowflake's doing right. a great job, and everybody else is kind of a mess right now on, on, on that. Um, well, I, Bob, you and I used to have these conversations all the time where you would ask me, do you see anybody catching up to us, right? And <laughs> the data sharing thing, that's the, still the question is like, is there anybody even close to that capability that, no. that Snowflake and, and the Snowflake marketplace? And now that it's global, right, the whole data cloud thing, it's like it's, this, it's a global – and it's funny because initially, if you remember the slides that uh, Benoit did at one point, he called it a global data mesh mm. before they called it Snowgrid, right? It was called a global data mesh but as part of the data cloud. And then when the data mesh stuff started coming out, okay, well, we're going to call it Snowgrid instead. But it, it's there. And I, I still don't see anybody getting close to doing it. And that begs the question, like, why would you try to do it in separate technologies if you could do something like, okay, now you've got relational AI getting into the pro the game with Snowflake. So relational AI on top of Snowflake. 
Well, I, I do think, I mean, let me say, I think there's going to be something else come. I mean, I know there's another. It has to, right? At some point. It's sort of interesting that it hasn't. Um, you know, I, I, I used to always say this. I mean, when people would ask me when I was CEO of Snowflake, what's the biggest thing that surprised me? And I always said, there's no other Snowflake. That's the right. other Now there is, by the way. Now that's not true. That was true in 2019. I, I couldn't say that now. Um, but but everybody's trying to follow. But on this one, they're struggling. And in a way, the cloud vendors have a disadvantage on this because they, they also are the storage partner for it. Mm, and in right. a way, being dis- you know, be, having a layer above that is, is beneficial to customers. So Snowflake gets some advantage in this, as does Databricks conceptually, although the, Databricks has not yet really indicated anything coherent they announced some data sharing in delta but it's not it's not there yet and it's it's not fully coherent really um not with everything else uh so the the question is going to be who and how does an alternative to snowflakes data sharing emerge and i do expect that to happen right yeah it's a it's covetable feature and meanwhile i'm happy they're doing a good job on it i'm happy they've done a good job they of course are now moving into the application business right they're now very much coming up full platform and are yep. encouraging vendors to actually host on Snowflake as if they were hosting on a cloud. Right. Um, yeah. It's, it's exciting. Bob, I've got a, we got a handful of minutes left. I know we've been largely focused on technology. There's a, there's a couple questions I wanted to ask you too, just as you've been a successful business executive gone through such high growth phases, you've interviewed and hired so many different people. I thought it'd be worthwhile to ask you some things related to your perspective on business growth, both selfishly and for the audience here. And, you know, given you've made so many hires throughout your career, I'm very curious to hear if there is specific characteristics that you always looked for when you were interviewing people, regardless of the department or any unifying theme when it came to what was top, top of mind for Bob when you were going around thinking about hiring specific people when you came to the, when they came to the final interview for you, how the culture of this person will fit into the organization. You know, I kind of assume, I mean, certainly if it's an engineer, I assume that, that they've been vetted by the engineering team and I'm not going to add a huge amount of value to determine if their coding skills are up to the snuff that, you know, that, that the, the senior managers want. But I mean, the real question is, do people fit into the organization and how are how, you know, how what are their values relative to the values of the company? You know, I think values are super important. I I encourage every organization I work with to establish their values and really live by them. You know, I yeah. learned, I mean, give it, say anything else you want about Bezos and Amazon. My God, the, the leadership principles that he put in place, that company lives by those leadership principles. Totally. There's so much to learn. And, and the customer focus that came from Amazon to me, there's so much to learn about. If you look at, you know, putting the customer first, um, you know, which is Snowflake's first first value, you know, that's that's inherent in the organization. I think Kent and anyone else who worked there will know that 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 everything was about doing mm-hmm. the right thing the customer and and treating their data as sacrosanct you know we didn't ever look at it you know we you know we we love to operate on it but it was there it's their material etc and so there's never any question about those sorts of things and that's very built into the values when we failed at hiring people Mm -hmm. it was as often as not because their values were you know, really, there's only a couple of reasons. The person isn't capable of doing the job we thought they were doing or their values are a mismatch, basically. And, right. uh, uh, you know, the latter tended to be the more common problem that we had with people. You know, certainly when people came in to the company and left in five weeks, it was a values-based issue. Yep. Yep. That you makes know, sense. It was, just, it was just was not a good fit. It was a, there was a, uh, a mismatch there between the, the value statements and, uh, and the culture. Right. Yeah. If you don't have the same values, you're not going to fit into the culture. Yeah. I, I, I agree with you. It's funny. One of my favorite quotes came from Bezos around putting the customer first. And he talked about being customer centric and how all these companies talk about it. But in actuality, when it comes down to it and they're competing, they get distracted by their competitors and they go and see what their competitors are doing and try to. Yeah, it's the wrong objective. They want to. They, the, the the customer should be the one that's actually driving what you're focused on, not your competitive landscape. And if you truly put them first, you won't get distracted by what your 
other competitors are doing. You'll focus on them first. Competitive so. focus is one of the classic failure patterns for organizations. And when you see it, to me, when I see it in a CEO, I, I mean, to me, that is a, I wouldn't say it's a death spiral, but it is a drag on the company. It's a red flag. That ultimate red flag. It's a major red. It's a major, it's a major red flag. Classic of this, the classic one of this, and I lived it on the other side because I fought. I fought against competing against Novell for years. Was Ray Norda <laughs> in Novell? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, this goes back. Most of the readers don't even probably. You most of the people watching this don't even remember this. But 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 the the you know back in the days when Novell owned the network, the local area network. Oh, yeah. Microsoft was the competitor. Ray Ray was was just completely focused on Microsoft. And honestly, if he had focused on his own company and what they were doing, I think they would have done a whole lot better than totally. what happened as a result. So. Gentlemen, this has been such an awesome conversation. I could stick on for another hour or two if you guys were available, but I know the audience uh, probably has some work to get back to. Hopefully everybody enjoyed this. Bob, I certainly appreciate you hopping on. For everybody out there, we'll leave the link to the Datapreneur's book. I strongly recommend checking it out. I read it in one sitting. It was such an easy read and so enjoyable. Uh, It's such a pleasure to have you, Bob. Kent, as always, uh, such a pleasure to have you on as well. And uh, we hope to stay in touch and hope everybody enjoyed this.